Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukkah Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Paige Willett and Adesh Nakas, Borewadme Ndao. I'm your host, Paige Willett, CPN tribal member and employee. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate us. Today, we're talking about indigenous agriculture from a different perspective. Citizen Potawatomi Nation tribal member Mary Belzook serves as the communications director for the Indigenous Food and Agricultural Initiative through the University of Arkansas School of Law. She brings together her skills, passions, agricultural background, and tribal heritage each day to help Native farmers and producers forge connections and improve their programs. She graduated from Oklahoma State University with an agricultural communications degree in 2015 after spending her childhood on a farm in the Oklahoma Panhandle, raising show animals and participating in the National FFA organization. I'm from the Bursaw family, and I grew up in northwest Oklahoma, in Winoka, Oklahoma, on a farm. I have two older brothers, and my parents still live there, and one of my older brothers lives there as well with his family. And then I have a daughter who's about to turn two years old, Ada Bell, and my partner. We live here in Shawnee, and um, we're about, you know, three hours away from home and at least an hour and a half from actually, like, anybody who's closely related to us, but, you know, I love living here in Shawnee because she's able to go to our daycare and learn our language and have those connections, and she's been the first one in our family, you know, for generations to be able to do that at a young age. Bursaw family, though, and that is your mom's side. Yes, yeah, so I'm Potawatomi through my mom's side. They had an allotment, and like so many of tribal members during like the 1930s sold allotments and, and moved. Um, well, they sold their allotment and actually ended up moving back eventually after, like, the Great Depression and stuff. So we eventually, though, found ourselves in northwest Oklahoma because uh, my great-great-grandfather, who was Potawatomi, died unexpectedly. We don't know if it was a murder or if it was an accident. There's a lot of, you know, strange family stories around it. My grandmother at that time, like, great-great-great-grandmother, ended up having another kiddo after him. His name was Earl. And they did not tell that child that he was Potawatomi until he was over 18 because it was just a scary time to be Native and it wasn't safe. We lost someone in our family super unexpectedly. So that meant that my great-grandmother had to find a job and some way to support the family because they had a six-week-old whenever that happened. They lived in Fairview and my great-grandmother Pepin, she was a phone operator. So they literally lived in there. So that's what brought us to Northwest Oklahoma was, you know, the loss of uh, my Potawatomi relative and, and the displacement that that put on my family and strong female in my family coming up with solutions and making it do in a time where women didn't live alone and they didn't forge a path, which some did, obviously she did, but it was just not like commonplace. So um, I decided to name my daughter after her, Ada, because that was her first name, just because of her strength and I can't imagine like losing my partner um, with a six-week-old and having to figure out everything. That would be a lot. Uh, what is your official title with the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative? So I'm the communications director at the Indigenous Food and Ag Initiative. Um, 
and we're based out of the School of Law at the University of Arkansas, but luckily I'm able to work remotely and live in Shawnee. Um, so that's that's awesome because whenever uh, they reached out to me about the potential of working for them, I made it very clear that I wanted to stay in my community and I wanted my daughter to have those connections. So um, I'm just thankful that they've worked with me to be able to do that. And I get to travel all over Indian country in my role and work with partner agencies from all over, tribes and tribal producers and citizens. Literally, I've seen more of this country than I have like in my entire life in the past year. So um, it's just been an incredible experience to, to be able to do that. What does your day-to-day look like? Oh, every day is absolutely different for me. (laughs) It depends on if I'm on the road or if we have special projects going on on the road that can mean presentations, meeting with tribal officials or connecting um, federal officials like through USDA with tribal leaders. When I'm at home, that can mean I'm doing some graphic designing because I am the one person over communications for a whole organization. So that means like I'm doing the newsletter, all of the social media, all of the graphic design, copy editing for reports and and things of that nature. And then we're also part of the Native Farm Boat Coalition. And so I help a lot with communications efforts for that too. That's why I think my days do look different absolutely every single day because we have different projects and just different things that we have to get um, over the finish line. What does the IFAI do and what are some of its main goals as an organization? We help support tribes and tribal producers all over the country. We are the back office legal and policy nerds. So we have quite a few attorneys on staff and folks who love to go and read legislation and see how that's going to impact Indian country. So I kind of knew that that would be a good fit for me because growing up, uh, I was very interested in ag law and there was actually someone who came and presented on wind energy in Oklahoma and whether that was going to be a mineral right or land right. And anyways, I geeked out on that. I thought it was really cool. This aligns really great with some of my, my passions to be able to come in with my ag background, growing up on a farm and having a communications degree and then my tribal background too, and being able to just kind of merge all of those together and, and my interests. So some of the main things that we do though, we have youth programs where we have youth that come in from all over the country, all expenses paid for them to spend a week with industry professionals in Arkansas at the university. They get to go out and see what tribes are doing in the area too, which is really cool. Um, then we're also the research partner for the Native Farm Bill Coalition. So we are very busy with that right now because 2023 is a farm bill year and it's supposed to be passed by the end of September. And if it's not passed by the end of September, then a whole bunch of other things have to happen. Um, So we are hitting the road hard on that right now. We've been doing a lot of outreach to see what tribes need, what's working for them, what's not working for them with USDA programs. And then we actually compiled a report called Gaining Ground. And it includes over 150 of those priorities that we went out and were able to get from that outreach. So now we have folks who are in Washington, D.C. and uplifting their tribal priorities. Um, Since we are part of the university, we can't lobby, but we are doing the research, getting in there and digging in deep and and providing information to our partners who then can help equip tribal leaders and tribal producers with knowledge to help make a change. But um, our main goal is just to have a strong, united voice in the Farm Bill because we did that in 2018. It was the first time the Native Farm Bill Coalition was created and we saw 63 positive provisions for Indian country and I mean we've we were maybe mentioned once or twice in farm bills in the past so having 63 spots where 
we were recognized and included that were positive for us is very impactful. So we're hoping to be able to expand upon that in the 2023 Farm Bill through the Native Farm Bill Coalition. Um, but on top of that, too, we, we help tribes with their tribal food code. So, you know, if you're wanting to expand your, your operation, you're wanting to establish a Department of Agriculture, or um, you want to protect your traditional scenes, we have law written out there that folks can take and, you know, make it how they need it for their community. We can also help with that. That's been a really big resource to helping tribes with their tribal sovereignty efforts. The Osage Nation is one example. Um, we were able to partner with them and help them write their tribal food code, and they're doing some incredible stuff with agriculture. Uh, they were able to open a meat processing facility in eight months from like concept build to opening the door, which is just like absolutely unheard of. But having that tribal food code as a foundation is critical to helping tribes, you know, do things like what the Osage Nation did. Um, and then we also have food safety training we go out and do for free across Indian country as well. So we help tribes um, and, you know, their workers or tribal citizens who want to become compliant so that they can sell their products and farmers markets that maybe are off reservation. Um, having that knowledge and that training will ensure that the food is grown in the proper way, harvested in the proper way, and you know that it's safe for consumption. So I even tell tribes like maybe you're not looking today to sell off reservation, but you want your folks to to know what they're doing and to to do it in the right way. How does the initiative's mission sort of match your values as an indigenous person? As a Anishinaabeg way, we're we're thinking about, or I'm thinking about, and other folks are also thinking about you know, the past seven generations and the future seven generations. I want to be able to help leave this world better than what it's been given to me. I want my daughter to be able to have clean water and food. I want my great-grandchildren to have that too. And it's it's scary when you get out there and you actually kind of think about where we, where we are in the world. And I think COVID was a, a good example because so many tribes experienced food insecurity on an even greater scale than just normal. I mean, it, it's inspiring, though, because I'm seeing tribes that had those negative experiences that are now coming up with solutions so that if anything happens in the future, they're not in the same place. Because you cannot be truly sovereign if you cannot feed your people. So if we want to be truly sovereign, we need to have the food and the water available to make that happen. And unfortunately, right now with how things are, are going, um, you know, they, they say that we probably have like less than 60 harvests before all the nutrients are depleted from the soil. Yet we have a lot of knowledge through our traditions, our stories, things that have been passed down from, you know, family to family, generation to generation. And I think that there's a great opportunity for that tribal traditional ecological knowledge and, and Western science and the Western perspective of how to go about agriculture. There's, there's a way that we can work together to come up with solutions that are going to ensure that natives and non-natives alike are able to feed themselves in the future. I think that that's what's so inspiring about our work is that I get to see that happen. And I get to see tribes who are implementing things, you know, making sure that folks have access to fresh vegetables and not just, you know, some of the processed foods and like the, the food distribution program on Indian reservations. Through our outreach with 
tribes and tribal officials and people who oversee FDIPR programs. We've been able to help elevate priorities and see change. Um, in the 2018 Farm Bill, th they had a, a pilot project for the FDIPR program, um, and it's allowing certain tribes to be able to go and purchase traditional local foods. Maybe they have different offerings like wild rice or, you know, whitefish from a neighboring tribe. And it's created trade networks and it's just really, really incredible. So I think that sometimes it's easy to forget the bigger picture of like what impact those things that we are doing have. But I think that that's just a great example is just seeing people being able to enter into agriculture, you know, having new farmers, new producers, people figuring out different ways to work together reestablishing some of those traditional trade networks. I mean, it's just been incredible to see that and to know that like we had a, a small part in that, just helping, you know, elevate voices and bring people together and, and conversate and, and things of that nature. But I just think as like indigenous people, um, we, we look at things a little bit differently than the rest of the world. We know we're in the seventh generation right now. We're going and we're picking up the pieces of the things that were left behind by our ancestors, to, you know, so that they can live on. But the eighth generation says that we've also got to walk the red road. We've got to live those principles, those teachings. We have to take those to heart. Otherwise, we are not going to make it. And, and I take that very seriously and I, I believe it. You have been working for the initiative for about a year and a half. Tell me a memorable story from your time. One, I just love getting to go back to our homelands, and I've gotten the opportunity to do that so many times. And, you know, like being able to see birch trees for the first time, uh, being able to see wild rice growing, you know, on the water around me, like those little things that we don't get to experience here in Oklahoma that just so powerful, but I got to spend some time in Wisconsin this summer and got to go up to the Red Cliff Nation, uh, they're Ojibwe, and hang out with them for a little bit. Got to eat some delicious whitefish. Then I got to go out and see the different boats that they take out on the water. They have a really, really cool setup where tribal fishermen and fisherwomen can go out and fish, and then they have a processing facility there and a storefront. I mean, just they've really tapped into that vertical integration and making it something that is beneficial to their tribal members because it's creating a market for them. I got to kayak out on Lake Superior. And the water here in Oklahoma is uh, much different than the water up north. It was just like pristine and so clear. And I could see like the boats on the bottom of the lake and drink water out of a waterfall. Being able to go and just like experience that was super powerful and meaningful to me. And it's just a beautiful area. I highly recommend any of us who have not had a chance to go. Go and see it. Go and experience it. There's just something about land. We're from the land. That's that's how we see ourselves as being from the land. And so whenever you actually get to go home to where that is, there's just this very deep connection that's kind of hard to explain in a way. So what have you learned about communities across sort of culture and their food systems? Each tribe definitely takes different takes on um, their agricultural operations. So... Like I went out to California and I got to see some almond and olive groves. You wouldn't think that's traditional or anything, but in that area, it grows really well. And they implemented some 
interesting different ways to irrigate the trees. And I, and I could see like around their tribe too. I could see where fire had recently been through as well. So um, irrigation is definitely important, but it was kind of cool to see how they had implemented things that maybe aren't exactly traditional, but, you know, thinking things through our lens and, and wanting to be a good steward of the water, wanting to be a good steward of the land and our resources that, you know, are given to us. Um, I think that that's a common thread throughout all communities. Uh, but of course, like our traditional foods are a little bit different in different areas. Um, you can go and hang out with a Diné and have a lot of different mutton and sheep that you might not think are traditional, but it's very much so traditional for them. They even have their own breed. And yeah, then up in the Great Lakes, getting just to, to see some of the different things that tribes are, are doing up there um, that we can't do down here in Oklahoma, like go wild ricing and go out to the sugar bush. So actually getting to see where they do those things. You know, I wasn't there at the, the proper time of year to get to go out and do any harvesting of that nature. But um, I, I think it's just neat to see tribes using the resources around them you know, to sustain themselves. And we do that here in Oklahoma too, but we, we've had hurdles to overcome, you know, new plants that we've had to learn, a new ecology that we've had to learn. So while we still do have that, that connection here, it's, it's just, it is a little bit different. And there are a lot of tribes that have been displaced just like us, you know. Um, so they're trying to figure out their way too. Like the Cherokee uh, pork is actually really big for the Cherokee nation and they have big events around it. I would say the main theme is, you know, we want to be good stewards of the land, good stewards of the resources. Uh, and we also want to have that sense of community and bringing people together too. It's not just what you would think of as someone getting in a tractor and, you know, monoculture just going down the row. It's much more community minded than that. What do you think people should know about Native communities that they don't maybe that you have learned? From an outside perspective, I'd say that the communities are vibrant, they're flourishing in their own way, it might not be exactly the way that, you know, Western perspective puts it, but communities are reclaiming their traditions, they're working with the federal government to find different ways of being able to implement their traditions into management practices, there's just a lot of momentum forward right now when it comes to, to food and agriculture and food sovereignty across Indian country. And I think it's because we do have that mindset of the next seven generations. We do have that mindset of wanting to take care of all of our relations, you know, not seeing any plant or animal as lower than us and actually, you know, being more intelligent than us. It's, it's a different perspective. You know, each tribe is different. So they need to come up with their own solutions themselves. And it's really cool to see how each one is unique and how they come together to find those solutions and, and implement them. Because what works for us here in CPN is not even going to be the same that our neighbors at the Sack and Fox down the road are, you know, our needs are different. But tribes are capable of taking on programs and implementing them and doing it successfully and actually being able to make a bigger impact. Um, it's just getting USDA to understand that and also including it in policy and making those policy changes that allow tribes to take on more farm, food, nutrition programs to serve their communities. That FDIPR program that I mentioned earlier is a great example of how tribes have been able to take 
honestly not very much money and make a huge impact. The fact that eight different tribes have been able to participate and spread the wealth has been, you know, just incredible. But I, I think that's what I want folks from the outside to understand is that we are capable of governing ourselves and we understand what needs we have in our community best. And that local control is so key. Um, we can't have a cookie cutter approach. We are each unique and different and we know what our needs are best, better than anybody else. And so we need that choice to be able to take those programs on and implement them in a way that's going to serve our people in the best way possible. If there are folks who are interested in you know, learning more about how to get involved in food and agriculture, definitely reach out. And if you know, you're wanting to do things on your own, I work with partner agencies that have resources and grants available. Like I, I would love to help connect folks if they're wanting to look into getting into agriculture or expand their operations. Um, we have resources to help. I want to see people be successful. I want to see tribes be successful. I want to see our people be able to have healthy food and clean water and access to those things. Um, sounds pretty simple whenever, you know, you just lay it out like, we want food, we want clean water, but it's very complicated. <laughs> Find out more about the Indigenous Food and Agricultural Initiative at indigenousfoodandag.com and visit the Native Farm Bill Coalition online at nativefarmbill.com. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Please click the subscribe button and leave us a rating. And share the show with your family and friends. You can find CPN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Potawatomi. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Miigwech Nikanek, Mamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.